0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it just turned 4 o'clock and as I said a moment ago it's time for Tuesday home time and I'll be here until 6 tonight. The last program for today, Happy Land in the Philippines, not living up to its name. We're speaking to Tom Reddington from AFEDA, the Trade Union Overseas Bureau for Trade Unionists. The last segment for Gene Ethics for the Year with Bob Phelps. The end of Mugabe in Zimbabwe and what does the future hold for the people there. We're speaking with Peter Murphy. And the finale for the Brunswick-Coburg anti-conscription commemoration campaign, a street opera in January with Nancy Atkin. But first, the last for my program anyway, for 2017, Mr Kevin Healy.
0: A week, Jan Lister, when we discovered from the Minister for Concentration Camp's Razor Wire and Sink the boats, Peter Duffer, that anyone who says China has some territorial claim over China is a double agent working against the interests of the US, of the UN, of the US, of the world. Uh, Don't you mean true blue Aussie Duffer? Oh, yeah. uh, What did I say? Uh, So China is the enemy. War is imminent? Uh, uh, hang on. Uh, Rick, get the U.S. Embassy on the line. I, I won't be a minute. The good news is that very soon the duffer will take over our national security. <laughs> won't we be in good hands and an even greater mind? And over where land grabbers are also trying to steal land off the innocent, poor innocent Zion, the entertainment world was thrilled by a riveting song and dance routine from that world-renowned duo, the Don and Ben Union otherwise known as U.S. of Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor, and his Zion counterpart Benjamin, not another Yahoo, as they gyrated in unison to the holy city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, interspersing their singing and dancing with bursts of witty repertoire. The holy city belongs wholly to Zion. Donald had them rolling in the aisles. Great line, Donald, great line, Benjamin fell about laughing, patting Donald on the back. And Donald was warming to his act. If the non-land-non-people had some right to East Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the song would say that. (laughs) Great point, Donald. Benjamin couldn't stop laughing as they built out another chorus before high-kicking off stage arm in arm. There was slight discord in the union as Donald insisted the famous fun, fun, fun act must obviously be the Don and Ben union, while Benjamin has strongly insisted it must obviously be the Ben and Don union, but that aside, despite the live audience as opposed to a dead audience, I suppose, no, the audience in the theatre loving the show, standing ovation, encore, encore, encore and the local critics and respectable media like the Jerusalem Jerusalem Post giving it rave reviews the Palestinian terrorist non-land non-people and the terrorist supporters of the non-people claimed Donald had sung from the wrong songbook backstage not backstage, front stage great, great, Uh, sorry Donald front stage, Donald said his decision would assist the peace process this great best decision in the history of decisions will assist by preventing the terrorists wasting their time and everyone else's valuable time it will make the non-land non-people realize there is no hope for the peace process how dare the terrorists waste my very very valuable time bad people bad bad evil but seriously We don't do this often with Donald, but in this case, credit where credit's due. Full marks for honesty. Well, honesty is his middle name, of course. Donald honesty trampled the poor. For as he said, he couldn't understand. Well, that phrase covers just about everything, but in this case couldn't understand why previous U.S. of big supremos, since uh, since the U.S. of agreed with the world that the non-people's country be converted to Zion, had not recognized Jerusalem when they all supported Zion 100%. So Donald, full marks for honesty, and we can be sure the U.S. of will continue its crusade as a neutral peace broker the poor zion train killer lot have been forced to turn their weapons reluctantly as always on these non-people who refuse to accept donald's recognition of reality and that non-person non-state terrorist hanana schwari had the temerity to claim donald's decision would encourage extremists how dare she encourage terrorists proving what a mistake it was to award award her the Sydney Peace Prize, as reasonable, rational supporters of Zion screamed and screeched at the time. Let's hope next year they correct the mistake by awarding the Peace Prize to the Don and Ben Union. Uh, Correction! Uh, sorry, Sorry, Benjamin, the Ben and Don Union. Donald claiming his decision, the vast world majority of the US and Zion against the huge minority of everyone else, would assist the peace process. The cynical might ask what peace process, but his claim is right up there with our big supremo Malcolm of Bull claiming credit for the same-sex marriage victory. What's the history of that again? Oh, yes, Parliament can't vote, Malcolm said. So, 122 million plus waste of public funds later, Parliament votes. I take credit for having the courage to withstand the attacks I knew I would be under because I lacked the courage to stand up to the dear baby Jesus supporters who determined my policies. Meanwhile, Dr. Malcolm was busy scrubbing up, donning the gloves and entering the operating theatre as he attempted to revive a dead patient. Thankfully successfully, as today's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 headline testified, I've revived economy, dash, ton of bull well it might be a ton of bull but no, let's be serious sadly the patient had been clinically dead for too long and the brain, brain damage seems irreparable but thankfully the revived heart has returned to life as the heart of the economy has and must be as cold as still serious, I've revived economy we have to admire Malcolm Free's modesty but surely if he took a good look at the gasping patient he'd be better off just shutting up two former socialist big supremos also made the news as they continued their great advances addressing homelessness and the pressures of housing costs on the working people to whom they devoted their political lives and obviously continue to devote their lives Julia Gorlinghard has joined the board of her very, very, very close friend Joshua Lieberman's property, finance and investment company, while the former world's greatest, worst treasurer, Paul, took a, quote, took a board role in MaxCap, a rival finance property house. This morning's story, also interesting comment, proving that secrets are better kept in the cloisters of Collins Street than in Canberra, Ms. Gallinghardt has already been on the board for five months without word leaking. Leaking? Is there something to be ashamed of? Goodness, what is there to be ashamed of joining the property for property industry obviously as a fifth columnist just to undermine the exploitation of property and make a roof over the head the right of those homeless and property-stressed? Why, she's already completed an Asian roadshow, it said a direct quote, to soft-sound private and institutional appetite for this market. What a clever fifth columnist. Poor innocent property financiers and investors. Julia said she's intrigued by the work of property financing. You know, it does sound gripping, and the little reimbursements top up their modest parliamentary pensions, but contrary to the ice-cold heart of the revived economy, isn't it heartwarming that Julia and Paul don't rest on their laurels, their massive contribution to working people, but continue to fight on behalf of those struggling in the roof-over-their-head market, or for many, the no-roof-over-their-head non-market on finance and her most gracious majesty we tend to forget the numbers of sponges and hangers-on and obscenely paid doll pledges in the gang of inbreds surrounding her most gracious like her son and screw you who mostly we forget exists he's the one who was sprung doing some dodgy trade deals or other well this week he came out all guns blazing defending his dear old mum over those revelations she has all this money invested in a tax haven or two and he's watertight defence. The money's invested in a country in which she's the head of state. <laughs> well, that explains that, just doing her majestic duty. Although Anne Screw you's fervid offence did leave me a bit baffled. And she pays tax on the investments, he declared. Now, hang on. The Paradise Papers that revealed his mum's tax haven investments implied she invested there not to spread her goodwill among her loyal subjects, but to achieve the very purpose of tax havens. What a devoted monarch. As the great department stores and great corporations and others with the revived beating ice-cold hearts display their Christian sincerity through delightful depictions of the birth of the dear baby Jesus and the ubiquity of Santa Claus, getting their claws into by explaining we can only express our care for others by giving them obscenely expensive gifts, They also join the chorus of devoted Christian practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all and those puppets whose strings they control in our various parliaments in decrying the landlords of Bethlehem for refusing a roof over the head of the pregnant virgin and the dear baby and the foster dad who fell for the virgin bit shame the head of our great department store without which melbourne would have no christmas spoke for them doing nothing for those who need a roof over their head with that he strode onto burke street and ordered the removal of a homeless sponger attempting to take advantage of his goodness by sleeping on his footpath this disgusting person is upsetting our cherished customers and their dear little children By the time I'm back on air, he'll have been flogging obscenely expensive hot cross buns and chocolate eggs for several weeks. And watch out for the massive coverage next Wednesday of the centenary of the second conscription referendum when the majority voted not to send cannon fodder to the sacred slaughter sites which forged our true blue Aussie values page after page, hour after hour we expect similar to the mass non-coverage of the first referendum centenary so finally let's enjoy the break listener and keep ourselves nice, good afternoon
1: and that's the final Mr Kevin Healy for Tuesday home time for this year but you've got one more chance tomorrow morning City Limits, that's the last program for him the impact of multinational mining corporations in the Philippines has been well documented on this program, in particular the devastating impact on both the environment and human rights of the Oceanic Gold Mine in Dipio in northern Philippines. But today the story of another community fighting a deadly mountain of coal dumped on their doorstep. And to explain, I'm joined by Tom Riddington, from Afida, he's an organizer for climate justice energy democracy but before I talk with Tom some background to the community the site where happy land is located today was once a small village by the sea the houses of fishing families connected by wooden walkways a place for children to gather mussels oysters and starfish from Manila Bay then 55 years ago the burgeoning city of Manila started dumping its garbage there The fishers became dump scavengers, and the bay turned into a poisoned lagoon. By the 1970s, the site became the city's primary dump site and magnet for peasants fleeing poverty and war in the countryside. If the new migrants could find work nowhere else in Manila, they could always launch themselves into the mounting pile of garbage to tease out scraps of metal or glass that they could sell for cash. They built their homes using materials they rescued from the dump. Beside the dump and even on top of it. Occasionally, the mountain of trash would collapse on their homes or the smoldering fire would unite dozens of shanties at a town. Their lives were so intertwined with the dump that they became indistinguishable from the garbage disposable people generated by an increasing consumerist society. In the early nineteen eighties, what someone had dubbed Smoky Mountain had become an international embarrassment for the regime of President Ferdinand Marcos. And in 1982, Marcos ordered the relocation of the scavengers. Smoky Mountain, he decreed, would become a seaside golf course or a park for the middle class. Bulldozers demolished the houses of the poor as soldiers stood guard. The new housing site, some 25 miles south of Manila, had government-built latrines, yet no water no electricity and no employment. Within weeks, the scavenger families began to return to the old dump site, refusing to die quietly of hunger in an out-of-sight neighbourhood. As the people power movement gained momentum, eventually overthrowing Marcos, the scavengers, with encouragement from the Catholic Church, organised and pressured the government to let them stay and develop the dump site into a viable community. Their struggle paid off. In 1988, President Corazon Aquino ordered a feasibility study for a low-cost housing project alongside the dump. When President Fidel V. Ramos, during his term in the mid-1990s, shut down their decades-old garbage dump site called Smoky Mountain, concerns were raised on how to alleviate the lives of hundreds of scavenger families living inside and around the notorious mountain trash heap. The plan was to turn the hellish site into a residential paradise for former garbage scavengers. So while several concrete mid-rise apartment buildings were being built over the old Smoky Mountain, the National Housing Authority built several buildings made of low-cost materials to temporarily house the former Smoky Mountain dwellers. Thus, temporary was born. It has been almost three decades now since the temporary housing site was built. The residential building are now dilapidated and structurally hazardous. The number of residents has doubled. A deteriorating, highly congested refugee camp surrounded by many garbage dump sites is now also known as Happy Land, a name derived from the Visayan dialect name for smelly garbage, Happy Land. Tom, you were there in September this year. It's known as Happy Land, but it's far from happy place today, is it?
2: You know, Happy Land is, I guess, what many would describe as an, an urban slum where a lot of especially rural people have migrated from across the Philippines to Manila, the capital city, in order to you know, improve their livelihoods, however, have found themselves. The main economy of the community is centred around waste-picking, and scavenging, and then selling what can be scavenged in order to create a livelihood. It's an extremely crowded community where around 25,000 people, you know, live in an extremely confined space. Access to sanitation, you know, has been improved, although is by far adequate. Likewise, extremely crammed living quarters. When I visited recently in September. There was widespread flooding, which obviously, you know, increases disease and difficulty. So definitely a a difficult place for day-to-day living, although, you know, the community has been fighting hard and there has been some improvements, but, yeah, I I would say, you know, a challenging place for for livelihoods.
1: And I'd imagine in 2014 when Rock Energy Corporation entered the scene, the, the situation deteriorated.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I think this is, I guess, what keeps happening with the climate crisis the world over is that vulnerable communities, poor communities, are most impacted by fossil fuel corporations. Yeah, recently I learned from the community about their story fighting this massive pile of coal that was imposed upon their community, literally leaning on the walls of their houses by Rock Energy Corporation in and. And 14. And basically, what used to be a common farmland where the community was able to have some livestock as well as grow some vegetables was seized by this corporation to store massive piles of thermal coal.
1: And the consequences of that?
2: Yeah, well, as you can imagine, dumping a pile of coal 50 metres tall next to 25,000 people literally leaning on them, leaning on the side of the houses has severe consequences, the coal dust basically going through all their houses, community members being coated in a fine layer of coal dust, you know, having huge impact on health. Uh, Recently, when I visited the community, I met with community leader Rand, who's been working for the last three years, you know, to fight this coal pile. And he told me about a story of a a six-year-old boy who had recently died of Black lung in a confirmed case of black lung. Speaking with the community, there have been many cases of uh, similar cases of, of black lung causing death, um, as well as the community reported a general skin irritation and respiratory infections as rising, as well as itchy eyes from, from the coal dust that literally, has, as you can imagine, is just everywhere.
1: Can I just take you back a step? Why do you have to have a mountain of coal? in an area anyway?
2: Yeah, so the community is on the edge of the port in Manila. So the location of this particular community centred on, it used to be next to the main garbage dump in Manila and the the main livelihoods of the communities was scavenging in this massive garbage dump. More recently that garbage dump's been moved, but the community is on the edge of a harbour which... Is being with Manila expanding and, and business expanding, um, there's lots of pressure for you know industrial space, real estate space. So the company decided that as well as with the growing demand for coal in the country, that in order to part of its business is shipping, importing coal, which is used in industry in the Philippines, and that this piece of land. It used to be, you know, a common where the community grew vegetables and livestock. That was a, a great place to store coal in order to better advantage its logistics of, of importing the coal.
1: How did MFIDA become involved?
2: Yes, well, FIDA's been working in, Happy, in the Happy Land community for the last decade through our partner IOSAD. IOSAD is a leading occupational health and safety organisation in the Philippines, that works with workers on occupational health and safety issues. Around 10 years ago, IOSAD responded to the high incidences of child labour happening in the community. This is when the main garbage dump was located in that area. The main livelihoods of the community were scavenging on the the garbage dump and parents would often take their children because they didn't have any childcare or schooling for their children. So the children would also be involved in scavenging and child labour on the on the garbage dump. So in response to that, a feeder partnered with IOSAD who worked with the community and other organisations active in the community to establish a program to look at ways of eradicating worse forms of child labour in the community. So over the last decade, IOSAD has done a number of things. One of the key initiatives has been an early childhood education centre, which has allowed children you know, access to early childhood education so that their parents do not have to take them garbage scavenging and that's been quite a successful initiative in terms of seeing the children then being able to access schooling. Another key initiative has been a health clinic that provides free health services to the community as well as I think the third successful initiative has been engaging the community in in organising for improved services. So over that decade, there's also been a primary school across the road that has also provided a pathway for children, obviously, into schooling, which the community has fought hard in order to to gain that. So, yeah, Union Aid of Broader Feet has been working with our partner, ISAT, in Happy Land for the last decade. and, And, you know, I think there's been some great gains in terms of eliminating the worst forms of Child labour and also seeing a more organised community fighting for basic services that it deserves.
1: How have they fought? What methods have they used?
2: Yeah, so a number of organisations have been really active in the community around organising urban poor, um, including Kadame, Wariella, Kelly Kaysan. So with the more recent challenge of this gigantic coal pile dumped on the community. Those organisations have been working with the community to get really active, to take it to the local authority, the town council, to demand that the coal pile be removed. They've had a number of shutdowns of the of the coal pile by op- occupying the entrance. They've had a number of, of protests at the town council, um, which has been consistent for the last Three years, and uh, what was you know really exciting was on my recent visit in September, is the community had one about 30 metre tall fences around the coal pile, as well as sprinklers. Which you know obviously it's never safe for a community to live literally next to a gigantic pile of thermal coal, but that is you know a considerable win given that it does minimise the coal dust. So that was a great win. Um, the community fighting on in order to get the coal completely removed. But what was really, I think, exciting and inspiring was to see their sustained efforts, you know, paying off, you know, obviously despite the, you know, the horrible consequences when we look at children dying of black lung and community health impact. But seeing that sustained mobilisation and organising was was really inspiring. And they were proud that they had won fencing and sprinklers and they were, they were steadfast in their resolve to continue the fight and to see that coal removed from their community.
1: Tom, can you talk about some of the people you met and the stories that they told you, apart from the six-year-old boy, some of the other people that you met?
2: Yeah, sure. I think I heard most about the campaign and the struggle from Ram, who's a community leader, uh, who's probably in his 40s, 50s, who has been very engaged you know, it's been really leading this campaign. As I was saying earlier, Happy Lane community is a really, you know, a, a dense place where you're twisting through little laneways and it's very hard to get perspective. So before I visited, I'd, I'd heard about the coal pile but wasn't really, you know, unsure about how close it was to the community and it was, you know, it was hard to tell when I was there. So Ram took me and we actually climbed up through one of the houses onto the roof and there it was, this you know, massive pile of coal literally leaning on the community. It's quite, quite shocking. So Ram shared with me the work that he'd been doing um, and the community had been doing, opposing the coal, occupying the entrance to the coal and working with a number of groups like Calakaysan, which is an environmental justice progressive organisation in the Philippines had, had run a number of workshops to educate community members about the impact the coal dust was having on their health and also, yet yeah, to work with them in order, you know, to take the situation to the relevant authorities and demand action. So, yeah, Ram was really inspiring. He was also very proud to show me that he'd made TV in the Philippines a number of times, and uh, yeah, so he was very proud to show, to show me, you know, a very short documentary that had been made, as well as a number of you know TV interviews he'd participated in. So yeah, it was really inspiring to to meet with Ram and to hear about their struggle, and you know, in the face of such adversity, the great win that they had recently, and and you know, their, their commitment to the ongoing struggle.
1: Well, you were you able to speak to any of the women there about their concerns for their families?
2: Unfortunately, the call was focused on RAM and I didn't have time to speak to many of the community about you know about the impacts due to time constraints unfortunately.
1: What impact has it had on you to see this community struggling like this Tom?
2: Yeah, I think it's you know I've been working in the climate justice campaigning and organizing space a number of years now um, but I think my work at AFEED is focused on climate justice and energy democracy but the reason I actually visited Happy Land was actually for a monitoring visit of this child labour project so I had heard about you know coal being near the community but it was actually a real surprise and shock to me to hear uh, the story and to see the coal pile literally leaning on the community and I think it really brought home the climate crisis is is the crisis of, of, you know, of inequality and it's the poorest communities in our region that are being impacted the most. And, you know, we're not even talking about the impacts of the climate crisis, just talking directly about the fossil fuel corporations and the way that, that they operate. So it was really shocking to think that, you know, this company thought that that's okay and, you know, to hear about children dying of, in 2017, yeah, it, it, it was really shocking. But I think at the same time it was really heartening and inspiring to hear about the struggle and the recent win they, they had had and the impact that their organising was having. I think that was that was really heartening.
1: And what's the next step for their struggle?
2: Yeah, as I said, I, they're committed to seeing the coal pile removed from their community their community is a precarious one. As I said earlier, being located next to Manila Harbour with, you know, the growth in industry there, there's a lot of pressure for more industrial space to be created. So, uh, you know, there has been an ongoing concern about eviction from their community, which would also be devastating for them, simply relocating to affordable housing in Manila for this sort of... Community isn't an option, you know eviction would be as I said earlier devastating, so they want to keep you know living in their community, they're proud of their community that they want this coal pile gone. so I think they're going to continue to take it to the the town council they're going to continue to organise um, they want to see the coal removed.
1: Did they talk at all about the Duarte's role? in so-called drug elimination in the Philippines, which in reality seems to be a, a war on the poor. Are they fearful of that?
2: That's Duterte's supposed war on drugs? Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, the community didn't focus explicitly on that issue, although speaking with some of the organisations like Gabriella, Kelly Kaysan, Kadame, that were working in the community... Yes they were extremely concerned about Duterte's supposed war on drugs essentially being a scapegoat for killing poor people you know a populist policy if you like to distract you know to distract the population from any progressive reform and actual support for working class policies rather using you know a populist scapegoat war on drugs yeah, I think Happy Land is one of the communities where the extraditional killings that regime has been undertaking, is one of the communities where this is happening. So, yeah, definitely I think adding another layer of, of distress and, and perhaps also fear for a community like this, definitely.
1: That's all I've got. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
2: Uh, maybe just I can quickly say a couple of things about Union Aid a feeder. Yes. So Unionated Broader Feeder is the global justice organisation of the Australian trade union movement. We work especially across the Asia-Pacific region with trade unions and allied movements for trade union rights, economic justice, women's rights, migrant rights, and increasingly climate justice and energy democracy. Energy democracy and climate justice is a new focus of Unionated Broader Feeder, and We're really focused on working with communities in Happy Land in, in Manila, as well as trade unions on these issues, you know, to ensure that there is a just transition to renewable energy, but also probably more important that there's a transformation away from the sort of neoliberal paradigm that has coincided with the climate justice to a future where workers and low-income communities actually benefit. I mean, there's a couple of ways people can get involved. One is right now we're running a, a holiday appeal to support this campaign for climate justice across our region. So you can go to afeta.org.au a to get involved in that one. And, yeah, you can also get more involved in AFEDA by becoming a member. Members of AFEDA pay a small amount of Jews every month but just as importantly they get politically active to stand in solidarity with workers and low income communities across our region. So yeah you can also become a member of AFIDA and get involved further. Thanks Tom That's
1: all right. And thanks to Tom Reddington from AFEDA.
0: Five hundred men struck for review to live across the
3: Union Busters are back on the docks, this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. The community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24 hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Webb Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the community assembly at any time of the day or night. For more information and details, Call Worker Solidarity on 0401
0: 516 967. Together, never cross a line. Never cross a line.
1: This is the last programme for the year and the last segment for Gene Network. It's been a busy year, Bob, and I'd imagine there's um, a lot to come next year.
3: Well, yes, I think it's been the busiest of our 30 years we're going to be 30 in January and we're going to be celebrating but yes it has been a big year but we've had some wins so we saw for instance just a couple of weeks ago in the last session of the South Australian Parliament that the GM free crop ban there which has kept South Australia GM free since 2003 is now to be extended till 2025 which is great State Government wanted to make it 2028, but the crossbench wouldn't agree, so uh, the Greens proposal for 2025 was accepted and went through both Houses of Parliament. So we're really cheering about that.
1: And also great benefits for the farmers.
3: Well, that's right, yes, yes. Benefits that we can see straight away for GM-free canola growers, at least, was of the order of $50 a ton. A recent report called Opportunities for Non-GMO Labelled Food Products from South Australia has also confirmed, really, that South Australia can benefit from staying GM-free. We've seen a number of other industries also embrace this. For instance, the Lucerne seed industry, which exports particularly to the Middle East, which is committed to remain GM-free, will benefit because they won't have to worry about getting GM contaminated and losing their markets. Uh, We've seen the grain industry, the dairy, and, of course, the wine industry, which has the potential to take and use GM grapevines and other processing aids resolve not to do so because, of course, wine's capacity for marketing, particularly at premium prices overseas, uh, is wholly dependent on clean, green and GM-free. All round, it's a win for the primary producers of South Australia and we are pleased as well.
1: It's all for the consumers too who are not consuming GM products.
3: Well, yes, the people are buying the food products, of course, and the, and the beverages are uh, avoiding those uh, hazards to human health and safety and also, of course, to, the in, to our environment. Overall, it's a good win. We're making progress in other states as well. We've got coming up an inquiry in Western Australia into compensating the growers who become GM contaminated. They're growing a lot of GM canola there. It's uh, the biggest state producer of, of canola, the largest proportion, about 10% of that canola Is GM. There was, of course, the Marsh versus Baxter case where a farmer who was organic got contaminated and couldn't get redress through the courts. So the State Parliament Committee is now considering getting some new regulations and laws which would set up a fund in order for uh, farmers who were contaminated to be automatically compensated instead of having to go through the lengthy and also, of course, very expensive business of going to court and very likely losing their case.
1: It's as you said, it it won't help Mr Marsh, but how is he getting on now?
3: Well, he's still there farming. Nobody's come round knocking on his door to take away his farm and to make him pay his costs. So I imagine that somewhere behind the scenes, unknown to us, Monsanto, which had backed the Baxter side of the case, has also picked up the tab because... I think that to put Steve off his farm over something that was the fault, really, of the GM canola industry would be really bad news for Monsanto. They've already got a reputation that's in the pits already, and uh, I think it would just make things worse for them. So they're really uh, just uh, continuing to sell their GM canola seed, make squillions and profits. They've picked up the tab for, I think, about if indeed this is what's happened, $700,000, which is what it was going to cost for the court cases.
1: The levy, where does the money come from?
3: I don't know what the um, Parliamentary Committee is going to um, resolve, of course, but our view on it, and certainly the point of view that we'll be putting to them, is that the GM industry should pay a levy on every kilo of GM seed that's sold and we're talking about quite a small levy. In the case of Western Australia, I think a dollar would do it. It's not a huge impost. It won't change the economics of the industry very much. It would create a pot of money out of which those growers who are adversely affected could claim for compensation. In the Steve Marsh case, for instance, his direct economic costs were $85,000. That was really cutting it to the bone, but at least it was A number that you could get your head round would have put him back on the road to recovering his uh, organic status, compensating him for the losses of markets which he suffered as a result of the contamination. So $85,000, there would have been plenty in the pot had this fund been established in time. But I think the government, the West Australian Labor government as it now is, is well on notice that the GM free farmers are up in arms about remaining unprotected And it doesn't just affect organic farmers, of course. All of the farmers, conventional farmers who are not using GM canola are at risk of being contaminated uh, from millions of seeds carried on the wind being blown over their fences, putting them in the situation of having millions of volunteer GM canola plants growing on their place to either affect the um,
4: GM-free
3: status of their own production or to get them deregistered, as Steve suffered, um, when the organic industry had to step in and say, well, you can't claim to be organic anymore because you've got GM on your place.
1: Is this farmer protection law due to the change of government? It wouldn't have happened under the Liberal?
3: Yes, no way in the slightest. In fact, it was the... um, The the former Barnett government, the Liberal government, that was uh, seeking or did effectively get rid of uh, one of the laws which had been passed in 2003 with the backing of the Greens, which was protecting farmers to some extent and making it mandatory for any new crop applications like GM cotton, which is being talked about for growing in the Ord, those would would have had to come back to the Parliament So they got rid of that rule, and now the Minister could make the decision unilaterally, and that's pretty unsatisfactory as well. But at least with the new Labor government there, which got in with a landslide at the last election in March this year, they had said that they would attempt to roll back the GM canola. In the event, they said after the election, of course, that it was too hard and they couldn't do it, but they had adopted a number of other things, like this view about compensation for affected farmers that does have legs, does have support within the Parliament and has widespread support in the agricultural community because of course something like 97-98% of all growers in Australia remain GM free, feel that they may be contaminated and have their markets ruined as a result of GM contamination. So most farmers are right behind a change to the law and we're hopeful that uh, West Australia will be a leader in this because uh, it's been the leader in accepting GM and now we hope it will be a leader in restraining the introduction of GM crops around Australia as South Australia, Tasmania, the ACT and Northern Territory have been, which uh, to this day remain GM free and are protecting their farmers.
1: The Gene Technology Scheme Review, it's on to Phase 2. You haven't got long to get your information into that?
3: Yes, just this week, the 15th of December, that's Friday. There's a portal on their website, so if somebody wanted to go there and answer their silly questions, they're most welcome to do so, and we have a crib sheet if anybody wanted to get that from us. It is rather long because there are about 30 questions, unfortunately. But the national scheme, which involves all of the state governments and the federal government, is being driven by the Federal Health Department. It is aimed to deregulate the new genetic manipulation techniques that have only been invented in the last five years, have got no history of safe use and there's emerging evidence that they're going to have many off-target impacts on uh, safety and the environment and other aspects of our lives. These are a group of new techniques, the main one is called CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, which people may have seen mentioned there's another one rnai and also a thing called gene drives which we're calling the extinction technology which uh, aims to put genes into organisms with the purpose of knocking down the population to the point where they would go extinct and of course there's a whole lot of magical ideas about this could deal with feral animals this could deal with malarial mosquitoes and a whole raft of other things But the position there is that the biggest funder of this worldwide is the US military. Uh, They want to do field trialling, particularly in offshore islands around various countries in the world, not surprisingly, including Australia and New Zealand. That's just come to light. And as a result, we are very determined that this uh, scheme review, which is going on at the moment, we should tell our governments very loudly and clearly all of these new techniques have got to be regulated. Maybe later on they can think about deregulating some of them, but no deregulation now because these things are quite untried. They've got the hands of the military on them. They're being funded from Gates, the US military and others. It just should not be allowed at this point without very, very serious scrutiny and without some real solid evidence that these things could be used safely. It's not there yet, and we think that uh, everything should be regulated now, whereas the H- Federal Health Department is saying they've got advice from the industry and from science that uh, some of these things should be deregulated straight away before they even get out of the blocks.
1: Mind-blowing, isn't it, what could be happening?
3: Well, it's incautious. You know, the precautionary principle is supposed to be built into our regulatory system. Everything was envisaged to be regulated when the law was passed in 2000. We had a very lengthy, multi-year discussion about what the regulation should do. The law has in it that everything should be regulated, and now in the middle of the game they want to change the rules and shift the goalposts on us. Not on, not satisfactory at all, and it's a very dangerous situation. So we're in Phase 2 at the moment. There will be a further discussion paper coming out, I believe, in February, so there will be another round. But in the meantime, if people want to go to the website, Gene Technology Scheme Review will uh, turn up the appropriate page on the Federal Health Department website. People are very welcome to get the briefing notes from us as well should they want to engage in this process because the more people that raise their voices now, the easier time we're going to have later when we've got to really fight it out with our governments and our policy makers.
1: Tell me about Dr Kevin Esfeld.
3: Of course, he's been one of the big boosters of gene drives, which I mentioned to you, which uh, have the idea of uh, wiping out whole species, particularly the mosquitoes, is something that he was extremely keen on, and of course the feral animals as well. But Kevin and his colleagues at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is one of the premier universities around the world, has now, after initially being very enthusiastic, as Thought. Oh well, perhaps we'd better do a bit of modelling of what would actually happen to those bothersome animals and insects which we seek to um, to wipe out, uh, because that's essentially what what it would be. It's no surprise, really. I mean, I think anybody would have seen. For instance, if you go after rabbits in Australia, very good idea, but we know that the uh, caliche virus, for instance, is in Europe as well unless it's very, very species-specific, that it can wipe out related species as well. So in Europe, they've had to be extremely cautious in the case of virus, which is the one that will kill rabbits, that it doesn't kill all the hares as well, because, of course, that's their natural habitat. And what Esfeld and his crew have um, discovered through their modelling exercise is that these en- engineered organisms... Could be wiped out globally, that these things won't remain where you release them. This is the real worry that we might say, oh, buffalo, camels, goats, brumbies, and a whole raft of other animals, for instance, that we have in Australia, cane toads is another one, are a big trouble for us. But we've got to remember always that somewhere in the world these organisms originated, it's their natural habitat, they're part of the ecological balance if they get wiped out worldwide, then we're talking about species extinction big time. We're already in the sixth species extinction, which human beings, of course, are responsible for, in which we're losing all manner of organisms from elephants and tigers right down to microorganisms. The same thing happening in the sea, and this is happening on a global basis as a result of our activities. And now we're going to say that we're going to fix up the situation by introducing a technology which speeds up the wiping out of other species of organisms in our world and expect this not to do ecological harm and to damage uh, the Earth's ecosystems. Well, Kevin Esfeld from MIT says this ain't going to happen. This is a trajectory on which we will do more harm, not good.
1: And how much say has he got in the system?
4: Well, he's been very
3: vocal uh, on the gene drives, which I've talked about, the extinction technology. He's been one of its key boosters and enthusiasts. And now he's, he's done this U-turn, which he says, I feel I've blown it. I made an embarrassing mistake.
1: Who's listening to him?
3: <laughs> you know? Well, not a lot of the enthusiasts around here. Um, for instance, in this technology review that we were just talking about a moment ago, they've um, recruited an expert panel Uh, And, of course, uh, what we see straight away is that the experts are people with vested interests who have conflicts of interest, who are going to get more grant money and do better out of this. And we're saying to the regulatory review, hey, hang on a minute. These experts that are advising you are not independent, are not objective. You'd better get them off the case as well. It's totally unsatisfactory. It's a put-up job, and we're not going to accept the results.
1: Just with that issue of knocking out so-called pests, it destabilizes the ecosystem. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Because you've, got, you've then got a gap in the ecosystem and something else is going to come in well, to yes, fill that, that gap. That
3: always happens. Yes, nature abhors a vacuum, as we know. So, yes, it's, um, well, just to take a, a very simple example in the GM area. So we've got the cotton in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland, producing a toxin which is toxic to certain caterpillars of certain moth species that do eat cotton. The caterpillar comes along, it eats the cotton, and it keels over and dies. Well, that's great. It does happen for a little while. We saw cotton of that kind launched in 1996. By by 2004, it wasn't working anymore because, of course, if you get a 99 kill on your uh, on your caterpillars you're going to get the one percent that survive are going to be very tough and you've got to get the next generation so we got the then we got bolgard the two gene gm cotton and now we've got bolgard three which has just been planted last season and meanwhile when you knock out those little caterpillars you also make an invitation for aphids mirids and a whole raft of other pests which are not normally giving you any trouble, which are low-level pests. They're just part of the mix. They suddenly hugely increase in numbers, start eating the, the crop plant. The BT insect toxin in the plant doesn't kill them, of course, so they don't have any worries about that, but they do eat your crop. So then you bring in the heavy guns again, and you have to start respraying not only the BT toxin in the plant to try to get the caterpillars but you're also spraying for the aphids, the myrids and the other little bugs that are going to come and eat your cotton. So you're really back to square one. Within 20 years, the cotton industry has gone full circle and come back to where it began, spraying like hell to try to control the situation and uh, really on, now on the, on the treadmill of having to buy seed every year, pay the patents to the Monsanto patent fees, generally be wondering can we con- continue to, use, to produce cotton in Australia because we've got so many pests eating it. And this is the thing about the Ord as well in Western Australia where they're talking about setting up a new cotton industry there, which has failed three times before because the cotton got eaten. They're saying, oh, Bolgard 3, that's going to be great, we'll put the cotton into the north of Western Australia. It won't work, it can't work. Uh, it's a short-term fix and you always come back to zero, where you began, and uh, you have to steal water out of the Murray Darling just to keep uh, uh, doing what you're doing in the meantime, and that will play out as well, of course, because it was mainly big cotton growers who were doing the water theft that was um, re- realised or was um, outed some time ago on Four Corners. There's been an inquiry, and now the cotton industry. The GM cotton industry, because virtually 100% of the cotton is GM, is, is in serious trouble and we may see that hemp, I think, would take over from cotton sometime in the near future.
1: Well, it should have happened long ago, shouldn't it?
3: Well, it would have been better for the environment, certainly, but of course now it has been approved. Um, hemp, of course, encountered the problem of being in the hallucinogen as well, but they've got the low hallucinogen varieties now and uh, yeah it can be used for a huge range a bigger range of uh, products than cotton and promises to be uh, a new agricultural bonanza for Australia with a bit of luck.
1: Back to those pests I don't know whether you want to talk about this or not Yeah, the effort to knock out the rabbits which wasn't successful in a lot of places but then if you take the rabbits out what do the predators of the rabbits then eat?
3: Well that's always a problem because of course um, even a feral animal does ultimately integrate itself in some sort of balance into your natural environment and there's one school of thought that now says that uh, we should be regarding things like rabbits, uh, camels that have been now here for um, what 150 years and the other uh, things that we humans have introduced whether they're plants, animals or microbes that have become feral and have become a problem in our environment maybe some people are starting to say we should regard them as we regard natives and should be nurturing them and seeing how we can manage the whole ecosystem uh, to keep it in balance and not have this kill kill attitude to things that weren't here originally whether it's a sparrow or a rabbit or a cane toad because of course they come to play a part as you've just said the rabbits are the uh, meat for um, raptors for instance um, and so are rats Uh, birds of prey are very dependent on those species for instance so uh, you knock them out and we don't know what sort of realignment there will be in the environment um, once they're gone so perhaps a good idea to think very carefully before we suddenly start letting off the big guns that are going to kill out whole species whether they're feral or not
1: well there's another issue that could wipe out a species and that's nuclear weapons and just on Sunday, great celebrations in Oslo and I believe the celebrations are going to go on for about five days.
3: <laughs> it's a big party all right. What a win. Uh, ICANN, which was founded here in Melbourne and has gone global, it's now um, its headquarters are based in Europe, has won the Nobel Peace Prize for 2017. And what a win it is, what, what, a, um, what a prize, and fully deserved, richly deserved. The big win, of course, beside getting the prize, is that uh, there is now a treaty for a global nuclear weapons ban. can very responsible for that. A, a UN meeting was convened several months ago at which 122 countries signed on to the treaty, uh, said that they would support it. Around 50 have already confirmed that, including several Pacific Island countries that, um, of course, reaped the havoc of being the sites of nuclear tests in the 1950s and 60s, have signed on straight away. And it's got legs, but, of course, the Australian government is still in denial, thinks that we can keep cowering under the US nuclear umbrella. And uh, Julie Bishop and the rest of them have... uh, taken the cowardly position that we should not uh, contemplate signing the international uh, nuclear ban treaty because nuclear weapons are still a huge, huge hazard there are some 15,000 nuclear weapons around the world trained on each other and with some mad people in charge uh, they could certainly be set off um, very quickly so we've had bans on biological weapons, chemical weapons, uh, landmines and a whole raft of other very destructive weapons of mass destruction over the last 30 or 40 years. This is the last port of call. The nuclear powers, there are only a handful of them, should just say, "Okay, the game is over. We're going to stop threatening, uh, really, life on Earth by having all these nuclear weapons targeted on each other and unreliable people in charge of them. We're going to disarm, and that will be the end of the nuclear arms race. Let's hope that it happens and happens soon and that uh, all of the countries of the world very, very quickly get on board, including Australia. We just need that pressure on this uh, stupid outfit up in Canberra and we need pressure on the Labour Party as well to follow suit, to say this is a new globalised geopolitics. This is um, a time when we want the world's people are starting to realise that we have the common purpose of all surviving together, uh, that we are common humanity. We don't need nuclear weapons uh, threatening us all and that we've got to get rid of them. And it was only four individuals who more than ten years ago sat round a table in a cafe in, um, in Carlton and conceived of this fantastic project. Really, congratulations to them all and particularly to be... Most warmly remember is um, Bill Williams, who unfortunately um, died this year before he could realise the triumph.
1: 30th anniversary potluck picnic.
3: Oh, we're rocketing on too, that's right. Yes, June ethics is 30. Uh, We're having a potluck picnic up here at Emerald Park Lake um, in um, the Dandenongs. So yes, from 12.30 on uh, Wednesday, December the 27th, We'd love anybody and everybody who would like to come, rock up here, Uh, do RSVP if you wouldn't mind, Um, give us a bell, 5968 2996, just to let us know you're coming so we can do the numbers, but it's going to be a good day out and uh, we'd really appreciate your involvement in our celebration because there is much to celebrate, uh, as well as the hard work still ahead of us, we've had big wins over the last 30 years, we're still going strong and uh, we'd love everybody and anybody uh, who cares about being GM-free as well as nuclear-free to come and join us.
1: Lovely. Talk to you next year, Bob.
3: Splendid. Thank you very much, Jan.
1: And that, of course, is Bob Phelps, and that phone number again is five nine six eight two nine nine six for the picnic. news dear listener it's that time of year we once again are selling two
3: delicious wines generously donated by local winemaking star and 3cr supporter luke lambert at 17.50
1: these wines are a super bargain labeled especially for us and they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast
3: 3cr at those summer festivities Give us a call on 9419 8377 to order. Or you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Ah!
1: Wines are available for collection from 3CR up until December 22. Ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from them. From the mid to the late 19th century, European hunters, traders and missionaries set their eyes on the land north of South Africa. And in 1889, Cecil Rhodes, British South Africa Company, gained a British mandate to colonise what became southern Rhodesia. White settlers began moving in. Any uprising over the next years were crushed the Land Appointment Act restricted black access to land, forcing many into wage labour. In 1953, Britain created the Central African Federation, made up of South Rhodesia, Zambia and Malawi. The later two gained independence in 1963, but not Southern Rhodesia. Ian Smith of the Rhodesian Front became Prime Minister unsuccessfully tried to persuade Britain to grant independence, so unilaterally declared independence under white minority rule, sparking international outrage and economic sanctions. But after years of struggle, independence was won in 1980 with Robert Mugabe as President. To explain more about the struggle against white rule, I spoke with Peter Murphy, a member of the Zimbabwe Information Centre, As I said, Peter, Mugabe became Prime Minister in 1980. Commentators refer now to 37 years of brutal dictatorship. Was it always that bad?
5: It had its different uh, periods, the Mugabe era in Zimbabwe, but political violence was a feature of the entire era, just that different people suffered at different times. Sometimes it was like mass repression and other times much more precisely targeted at, at political opponents.
1: Well, the next question is why?
5: Well, I think uh, without going into the sort of psychology and looking deep into the soul of Robert Mugabe, uh, what we had was a a colonial regime in in, uh, Rhodesia under the British, uh, which was founded in terrific violence. And then we had a, a unilateral declaration of independence by Ian Smith in 1965 to avoid a decolonization process and uh, therefore, you know, the absolutely uh, blatant imposition of a white minority dictatorship, uh, which was backed with violence. And then, of course, there was the armed rebellion against that uh, from 1965 through to 1979, which was a terribly violent struggle between the Smith regime and the ZANU and ZAPU armies and uh, a lot of civilians were killed in in that uh, war so really the people of Zimbabwe didn't ever have a democratic reference point only an ideal and uh, the leader who might have had enough conviction and uh, vision to transition to a democracy was Herbert Chatepo, a ZANU leader who was assassinated in Zambia in 1974 that particular murder uh, is, is uh, pretty historic for Zimbabwe and probably in the next year or so a lot more information might emerge about who really was behind that. There you got Robert Mugabe who's really come to power on violence and uh, from day one of his regime, you know, uh, he and his uh, cohort of uh, people who ran the new government were much more interested in getting a Mercedes Benz and, and getting rich than taking care of the people. So it was never a good start.
1: I imagine that the whites didn't take this lightly. What, how did they react? Did to, they leave?
5: To the liberation. Mm. Uh, did they leave? There were about 240,000 white people at the time of uh, 1980 and about 200,000 of them left. So, you know, by, you know, within a couple of years, the white population was, was definitely no political threat to Robert Mugabe and really all of the important politics was among the African majority.
1: The squatters taking over the farms, w- were they able to successfully run those farms?
5: Uh, no, we, we've jumped now <laughs> to uh, the year 2000. In February of that year there was a, a, a referendum for a new constitution and uh, there had been a really important mobilizing of the people in 1998 and 99 for major reform and really to change the government and the constitution was a a big uh, issue in that because the constitution of uh, 1980 had been amended so many times in favor of the president's powers that it was a dictatorial constitution so uh, Mugabe tried to head this off by putting forward his own new constitution but in the referendum it was defeated, which was a big shock to him, a very big political shock. And uh, that was just early February, and the farm occupations was launched, you know within a week of that happening. And it was a direct you can say, oh yes, this is a direct attack on the white uh, commercial farmers, but really it was a significant attack on the black farm workers who worked on those commercial farms who uh, were clearly a, a block vote against Mugabe. So uh, that population was really just uh, dispersed. And the consequence was an absolute collapse in agricultural production. It's never recovered. So this is 17 years later and it's not recovered. So um, basically, more and more commercial farms were occupied in in these subsequent 17 years. Those people who were settled on these uh, Seized properties were not really financially capable, or technically capable of producing the same commercial output. And a lot of equipment was simply trashed—you know, uh, sent to the metal recyclers, or, or, or just uh, deteriorated in the field. So irrigation systems, tractors, and other other processing equipment just was um, destroyed over a few years. Well, I would say that the number one priority for the new government in Zimbabwe now would be agriculture, and it's important to have a look at how this new president, Manangagwa would uh, really go about that. Right now, it's uh, like they're praising a, a program of last year called Command Agriculture, which was run by the military to try to get seeds and fertilizer to a wider range of farmers, but uh, Pretty dubious. Uh, on, on the one hand, there's claims that it was a great success, and uh, the data, though, shows that uh, the maize crop in particular was uh, really not, not at all good, and uh, the country is having to import a lot of grain uh, as well as accept aid in the form of grain.
1: Apart from Mugabe and his, his mates, I suppose that the military would be the one group in Zimbabwe that, that actually survived fairly well during those periods
5: yes i think that the uh, they call them the securocrats these were the commanders of the various agencies of the security forces these were a solid phalanx of support for robert mugabe all through this uh, last 17 years when he's obviously been in enormous political difficulty so they obviously need their own economic base to keep going there's no way An army can keep operating uh, coherently without its uh, troops being fed, clothed, educated, their families having enough to live on, therefore the wages have to be sufficient. And uh, as the economy collapsed and collapsed, the uh, stresses even were apparent among the military. From time to time there were these outbursts because uh, soldiers couldn't get enough currency at the banks and so on. And during the period from 2009 to 2013, when there was a sort of a, some kind of national unity government, then South Africa took on the job of paying for the security forces. So uh, this period also coincided with the finding of diamonds uh, on a large scale and there's enormous scandals really around the exploitation of the diamonds the uh, military played a dreadful role in uh, really massacring uh, small-scale diamond uh, miners and seizing control of the most valuable fields. They were divided up among various elements of the regime, and then they've had a falling out as, as uh, re- in re- maybe one year ago. It was clear that all the alluvial diamonds were exhausted, and it was a matter of uh, deeper mining and therefore more capital-intensive mining. And there's been a lot of trouble in the regime itself and between the regime and China over the exploitation of the, of the diamonds. So I think that in this last little period, the military have also been struggling to secure enough financial base. And I think that this would be the better way to see what happened in the last few weeks, that uh, what uh, President Mugabe and his wife Grace were doing was threatening the viability of the economic base of the army in the next couple of years. They just did not tolerate that. Um, Whatever the other language used about the liberation struggle and the good of the country and all of this, I think uh, it's better to understand it as uh, the military securing their base and that Sanu-PF is the political vehicle of the military.
1: Peter, could you say that in a sense South Africa also supported Mugabe's regime by allowing maybe up to 4 million people to cross the border into their country?
5: Yes, I think uh, there's a a strong uh, case to be made that South Africa has benefited economically from the collapsing situation in Zimbabwe. So there's an economic motive that assets in, in Zimbabwe became very cheap and South African investors could buy them up and also With production falling in Zimbabwe, South Africa could export more into Zimbabwe. And then there's the the educated labor force of Zimbabwe, which mostly left uh, as the economy collapsed. And uh, the great bulk of them went to South Africa. And uh, smaller numbers, significant numbers, but much smaller, went to UK, USA, um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and to some extent Botswana and uh, Mozambique. But uh, South Africa got the great benefit of that labor force. Not that everyone in South Africa would agree that that was a great thing. And also there's a a political dimension to this in in the sort of mythology of the liberation struggle against uh, white minority rule in Southern Africa. People like Jacob Zuma, the president of South Africa, and before him Thabo Mbeki insisted on showing support to a completely failed case like Robert Mugabe as a way to uh, maintain a certain mythology about themselves. So for their own political benefit, they protected Mugabe when he was such a disaster.
1: A few years ago, what, there was a credible opposition to Mugabe. The leader was Morgan Changarai. What happened to that movement? In
5: 2013, there was an election which was widely expected to lead to a massive victory for the movement for democratic change and that Morgan Changarai, who, who had been our deputy prime minister in the transitional government or that unity government in the previous four years that he would win but a lot of things happened around that first of all the opposition has always been fractious and not really consolidated behind morgan chungurai he was enormously popular with the great mass of people who wanted change but because he was a trade union leader a former miner there were the other people in the opposition who were lawyers and, and other well-educated in their minds people who just did not accept that the president of the country could be a former mining worker. They were always jostling uh, around Morgan to remove him. There was always this a rather naive and, and really disappointing attitude in the opposition that you know, Mugabe might die tomorrow or, you know, at the next election he'll be swept aside and uh, power will just fall into our laps and then we'll get rich too, I think was part of the, the thinking or the feeling going on inside the, the opposition. After 2013, the election was stolen in a sort of operatic uh, way. You know, it was so magnificently blatant. It was like a comedy uh, tragic, obviously a very tragic comedy, but uh, you know millions of votes were manipulated. There was the particular assistance of an uh, Israeli-based uh, consultancy called Nichols, N I K U V, which greatly manipulated the election roll. And then people were just denied the vote, even if they were on the roll. And then other people were bust in in massive numbers. So the the you know I can't remember the exact figure, but I think Mugabe. And zainu claimed that they had a majority of, like, 75% of the votes, which, which was totally ridiculous. One of the, uh, the fallouts from that was um, inside the opposition movement, the knives really came out. And uh, Morgan himself reacted in a fairly authoritarian way. Even really solid supporters like uh, Mrs Sakai-Holland, who Australians know well... Uh, had to uh, step back and criticise what he was doing and of course she was ending up criticising what others were doing and in particular uh, political violence emerged inside MDC so people were bashed up at meetings and uh, this is absolutely intolerable to many people so blitz occurred and now MDC is in at least four parts still squabbling, still squabbling in the same sort of way I, I described You know. And now, of course, Mugabe has gone, you know, so there's even more feverish expectation that, uh, you know, in a few months' time, one of those aspiring leaders will become the president. Power will just fall into their laps. Well, uh, you know, that's a complete delusion, and uh, I think um, the people of Zimbabwe haven't really been served well by the opposition. But I would say that, you know, even now, Morgan Changarai would be the best bet for the people to get a different kind of government and uh, he's certainly still got the popularity. But just how the opposition now will really react to Manangagwa, and he's, he's quite popular, in, at least in the very short term, then uh, that will sort of emerge and we'll get a clearer picture of what might happen in the elections. Uh, the elections are due around May, May next year. That might shift a little bit. I don't really know what the new government will do on that. But uh, I think Manangagwa wants the election to happen on time to demonstrate to the international community that things are changing for the better so I do think there's an expectation of uh, election being a key to the economic recovery that that's a national consensus there's no one disagreeing with that Manangagwa I, I still think will, will do his very best to maintain a Zanu Pf win uh, unlikely as that, that is.
1: Where did Grace Mugabe come from and what role do you believe she's played in the last few weeks
5: oh well, she's been an absolutely destructive uh, element in the politics of the last just the last few years Grace Mugabe was uh, a secretary working in the president's office I really didn't go into this as a sort of a study but uh, Robert Mugabe's first wife was uh, a liberation fighter and uh, well regarded but she got cancer and died and uh, he married Grace very soon after, and I think he was having an affair with her before. And uh, Grace is about 40 years younger than than Robert Mugabe. Definite trade in <laughs> for the younger woman going on there. She's got no political sense at all. Isn't really a Zimbabwean, in fact. You know, so she she got a lot of problems with uh, sort of pol- taking on a, a major political role. And in the end, it was clear she wanted to be the next president. There's there's that about it. But I think uh, after saying those things, you'd have to say, well, she she never played a role in politics. She was just a notorious shopper um, until the last few years. So um, Robert Mugabe was using her to divide and rule among the contenders for succession in ZANU-PF. He definitely uh, used Grace uh, to eliminate Joyce Majuru, who, who was a liberation fighter, who was a vice president and who could have been a contender for the presidency. Once that happened, that was a sort of a rapid emergence of grace two years ago. Uh, she became head of the Women's League of PF, and then, then eliminating Joyce in a real hate campaign. Just a dictatorship dynamic going on, really. But she was the fulcrum for it. In this last couple of years, she's been involved in so many scandals that uh, you know she's been ripped off for millions of dollars of buying diamonds and... Uh, She's been ripped off for millions of dollars on real estate in, in Hong Kong. She's sort of an idiot in, in terms of managing affairs. And, of course, she's seized quite a few farms and uh, there's been controversies about how she's brutalised people living on those farms. As a politician, she was absolutely uh, a, a disaster. It's, it's just really no surprise in the end that the military will not, would not accept someone like her taking over And she was making it very clear that she would. And once once she made the move against Emerson Munangagwa, I think, you know, the thing was going to come to a head or a climax uh, really quickly. I was just surprised that, uh, you know, Munangagwa had to flee the country for a a week or so because of the the way things played out instead of her having to flee the country. But anyway, it's all the tables have turned rather quickly with the military intervention and and Grace Mugabe's now been expelled from ZANU-PF. the whole group that was called G40 that were closely associated with her campaigning have all been uh, removed from the party and sacked from their jobs. A couple of them have been arrested. So it's quite a purge actually happening, a limited one but a significant one and Grace was the sort of uh, key focus of that purge.
1: Talk for a couple of minutes, Peter, about the new president. He's 75 years old, Emerson Manangagwa.
5: Well, I think, there'll be a lot more written about Emerson uh, now, but uh, he's really a securocrat, and he, he became very prominent early on in ZANU pf as a sort of a very close aide to uh, Robert Mugabe, and in the early governments he was a security minister, so he had a lot to do with the intelligence side of things, and uh, he's actually a man of few words, he hardly gives any speeches, And obviously now he's a president, he's had to give one or two, but he, he was uh, in these years of struggle, recent years of struggle, where it's been mayhem, really. He's been abused a lot in public, but never really retaliated. And uh, he just consistently said that uh, he supports President Mugabe. He wouldn't do anything to have President Mugabe humiliated. And he just kept playing this very straight bat, despite all of the turbulence that kept mounting. You could, you'd have to say that you don't know what he really thinks. He made a couple of significant trips in the last two years, and one of the most important, I think, he went to China. He probably went to China, you know, in the 1970s. But this trip uh, happened at a time when the Chinese uh, had just had their diamond companies nationalised by Mugabe. Munangagwa was there to try to get money and you know, to try to get financial support for the regime from China, which had been giving quite a bit, but the Chinese were very, very disturbed with what uh, Mugabe had done recently, and uh, I think that they, they were saying to Manangagwa we want change and we'll back you for change. He came back ha- having made a public s- statement saying things were difficult in, in Zimbabwe and that there had to be changes to the economic policy, and he would be looking for how to do it. So that was one of the big signals, I think, to Robert Mugabe to uh, have a go at, at Emerson, who he had relied on so much for, like, decades. I just don't see Emerson Managogua as a successful politician, despite, you know, his great strength in the military, unless it's going to be really a military dictatorship continuing, which, which it could be. But I think he's given enough signals that uh, he knows that the country can't continue the way it is and even the military cannot survive... Without a reinvigoration of the economy and that really means that uh, there have to be changes which would satisfy China but also satisfy the West. So I think uh, he's aware of all of that and uh, that's why there's an opening for a genuine change next year. Whether or not it's allowed to happen by Mnangagwa in the end I don't, I, I wouldn't bet on it, you know. But he's given a lot of signals that, that he understands the need for that. Having just got rid of Mugabe, I mean, the people are definitely going to give him a chance. There's not going to be a great uprising against Manangagwa, There's going to be an expectation that he will facilitate a further change. It's only after next year's election, if, if this doesn't really crystallise or eventuate, that, that things will really become a lot tougher you know, for Whoever is the government then, which let's presume it still might be Emerson Manangagwa.
1: Peter, you were there just prior to Mugabe resigning. What was the situation you found?
5: Uh, it was very alarming you know, because uh, there was a group of us Australians from the Zimbabwe Information Centre landed the day after Manangagwa was uh, sacked. He had fled, uh, no one quite knew where he was. So uh, there was alarm and uh, consternation actually. We were able to visit the Australian Embassy there and we met some very senior civil society figures, church, trade union, boarding, former liberation fighters, young people involved in economy. So they, they were all actually on the on the wavelength of a cha- changes is happening, <laughs> but were very worried about how bad it might get because like on day two when we were there, Mugabe called a rally in front of his uh, party office, party headquarters and uh, it was an ugly scene there was about maybe 500 people gathered there and both Mugabe and his wife Grace gave these dreadful hate speeches against Managagwa calling for him to be killed really they uh, incited really that crowd so people went from that rally into the commercial centre of Harare and, and just found the first two young people who they thought it might be Manangagwa supporters and, and stoned them to death. So it was a very sort of, you know, sick sort of atmosphere and uh, people were just so on edge about what could happen next. But at the same time, we, where we were, there were phone calls coming in from Manangagwa's team looking for uh, conversations or dialogue with different elements of the opposition. People were saying, well, we, we better respond, you know, we should talk. But it was a bit of a mystery whether Manangagwa was in uh, Mozambique, whether he was in uh, Harare. He might have been in Zambia. He might have been in China. Um, But actually, he was in South Africa. After we left Harare and came back to Australia, it became clearer where he was and what he was saying. It took another week or so, and then those tanks emerged and uh, sat outside the President's house and the uh, Zimbabwe Broadcasting Commission. And once that happened, in my mind, you know, it wasn't really a coup. Uh, it was really a, a, a correction going on inside ZANU-PF for a fiasco or a disaster. So it took a long time to get Mugabe to go. And one of the reasons why it took so long was that South Africa's president, Jacob Zuma, intervened on his behalf. So that was a really incredibly stupid and negative thing for Zuma to, to have done and it delayed, it delayed things uh, that should have happened quicker. So Mugabe was ready to resign and then he got the call saying don't do it and, and, he, and he refused. <laughs> so it took another almost another week to, to straighten it out. But you can see that the military weren't going to just chuck Mugabe in jail. Even in that situation, they weren't going to uh, use physical force directly on his body even though it was a very humiliating situation. And, and once the <laughs> The people came out on the street demanding Mugabe to resign. That was the political death of the regime then. Mugabe watched on TV as hundreds of thousands of people danced on his demise. The military used their own direct strength, plus they, they knew how to call on political pressure. That was how it was wrapped up. It took too long.
1: Finally, Peter, this is something that people both within Zimbabwe and also outside have been. Waiting for many, many years, the demise of Mugabe. Mm. How do you see it in the very near future?
5: There's a sort of a end of the honeymoon already uh, because Manangag was just announced his new cabinet. He had to adjust it a bit, but they're going to be sworn in later today, our time, and they're all ZANU PF. You know, any expectation that he would immediately open up the situation and try to include. opposition in a transitional government up to the next election that's not happening so there's a sort of a a bit of a reality check (laughs) happening for most of the people in Zimbabwe right now there's a bit of a reaction about that also uh, I don't see anything more than a sort of absolutely temporary sense of economic recovery because the country really is bankrupt and the level of imports is, is so massive compared to what they can export that the, dollars, the US dollars that they use for currency, they're just always flowing out more than flowing in. And uh, the international financial system will not, will not refinance Zimbabwe until there's some definite political change which could allow confidence that there won't be any further massive corruption and plundering of the economy just by a, uh, a dictatorial group. That was around Mugabe and they, they're not so sure it has changed enough. So that, that's why I think the elections next year are, are really the key uh, opportunity for decisive change. This next seven or eight months, six months, is, is going to be very frustrating for people. So as we get closer to the election the, 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 and, and the economy just doesn't improve, you know, that. the the sort of stress and anxiety and all of that will will increase. You know, the the depression, you know, the sense of of great depression, which really is psychologically across the country, will will still be there. I hope that the international community really uh, pays attention now to Zimbabwe, which I think is starting to happen. Um, Australia is in an important place. It's got an embassy there and it's got credibility with everybody there. So as as a sort of positive, constructive voice... Australia can uh, help bring people to encourage the civil society to unite, to have a credible program for the recovery of the country, give confidence to the people that if they make the change, there will be help coming from outside. So just to sum up, I don't think the help will come from outside tomorrow. It will come maybe in the middle of next year. So that's, that's a tough outlook, I think.
1: Thank you, Peter, again. Okay. And that was Peter Murphy talking about Zimbabwe. He's a member of the Zimbabwe Information Centre, and I spoke with him last week.
0: Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Centre in St Kilda. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah! for reuse,
2: reuse, recycle. And you heard first on 3CR.
1: On the 7th of January next year, the culmination of over two years of hard but very rewarding work for the organisers and participants in the Brunswick-Coburg anti-conscription commemoration campaign, commemorating the two successful campaigns in 1916, and 1917 against conscription which realistically saved the lives of tens of thousands young australian men fighting for britain in the trade wars the first world war will be staged in a street opera one of those who was there at the beginning is brunswick resident nancy atkin nancy take us back to the very beginning i believe it was actually in response to the celebrations plan for the 100th anniversary of World War I, which got the ball rolling.
4: Yeah, that's right. With the World War I celebrations, our local group approached our local member of uh, federal parliament and said, could we get some funding to commemorate, you know, the opposition to World War I, the anti-conscription movement, the anti-war movement. And we were astonished to find out that the, the federal money that had been allocated was so clearly defined that it could only commemorate the servicemen and servicewomen and the nurses and people who actually went to the war to fight or to support the fighters. And that, that it wasn't possible to get anything to remember the very important work and also the a very divisive nature of, of the war through those channels. So we said, OK, well we, have to do, we, we have to do something anyway.
1: And who is and so this group? It
4: was a kind of loose group of Brunswick residents, which we later gave the name... Uh, Brunswick Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign, only so that we could talk, call it the Brunswick Coburg A Triple C. But then, <laughs> of course, that was our name, and it is a bit long and clumsy, and it's come to, come to haunt us for being so witty. But anyway, so, so. But the group is just, a... as I said, it's a loose group of people. Some people have, as a result of that coming together, some people have organised meetings leading up to a big, uh, big conference earlier this year. Another small group of people worked on some historic walks. We raised money to put up some of the old posts. We got the local street poster people to, to uh, blow up and plaster around the suburbs some of the posters from 1917, opposing the war, war and calling for people to vote no to, in the referendum conscription in 1916 and 1917. And one of our members worked with the local school to develop some curriculum resource materials so that the school kids who study in Year 9, study World War 1, could more easily access materials about the local experience. And so Pam Duncan helped to actually write a history unit for for Year 9 students at Brunswick Secondary College, which they followed for the last two years.
1: What you're talking about now, those planning days were actually in early
4: 2016. Yes, yes. And so then uh, we'd already... had some meetings and had some activities, and we got a. Uh, and we saw on a blog by a woman called Cheryl Griffin in the Kerberg Historical Society, and I don't know if she actually knows that, that it's because of her this whole thing started. Because we saw on her blog this fantastic newspaper clipping where it said that Adela Pankhurst was locked up in the female prison, which was at Pentridge her anti-war agitation because there were very stringent laws restricting what you could do to oppose the war in 1917 and the newspaper clipping says that a, a group of people, mainly women, believed to be socialists and 40 to 60 in number gathered outside the prison to serenade Miss Pankhurst and gradually the, the crowd built up and uh, within the hour there were three or 400 people there. And this was on the seventh of um, the seventh of January, 1918, and it was a hot summer night. And you can imagine in Coburg in those days if there was no air conditioning. People would have been sitting outside their houses, and they would have heard the racket of people singing the red flag and solidarity forever. And apparently they had coloured lights, which probably were fireworks, um, and they were cooing over the walls to cheer up. Uh, Padilla who'd been by that stage uh, locked up off and on for a couple of months,
1: and they were treated pretty badly, weren't they?
4: Well, the police came, and a couple of people were arrested, and then the, the group went down to the police station, and um, they went to uh, they uh, carried on down there, and they went to the house of someone opposite the police station, where they made a racket for the um, the rest of the night. The people who were arrested were, if I remember correctly, were um, were we'll fined $5? No, maybe that's not the case. But anyway, yeah. The five pounds. Five pounds. The fines fa- people were getting uh, in the currency of the day were quite hefty. But the other aspect of it is that, yeah, sure, the police the police may have been heavy-handed and the restrictions on where you could gather and meet were also very strict at the time. The, uh, the, the accounts at the time talk about how people went to the Brunswick. City Council and asked for permission to meet in the town hall or meet on, on street corners, and they were always refused by the council because the council was dominated by conservative business people who were pro-war. So even to have a, a meeting on the street, people were going to um, private blocks of land, to empty blocks up and down Sydney Road, where they could they could hold a hold, hold, a, um, hold a meeting. But at the same time as there were all these restrictions and as, as you suggested, heavy, maybe heavy handed police and certainly heavy fines and people being put in jail for those activities. But at the same time, there's clearly a sense of kind of fun about the whole thing and the fact that the people went and partied on opposite the police station for the rest of the night. And there's another wonderful description of one of the, uh, an attempt by the, uh, by the pro-conscription people during this whole conscription debate, to have a public meeting for women to explain why they should vote for conscription in the Fitzroy Town Hall. And the local women and girls, the newspaper reports say, came along and broke it up because, of course, there was no amplification. And so to have a public meeting, you had to be able to get the support of the crowd. And so they just sang and they danced around the floors and, and... None of the speakers could make themselves heard, and in the end they they gave up. But it sounded as if the women who went had a terrific time and and entertained themselves thoroughly.
1: Tell us a bit more about Adela Pankhurst.
4: Mm. So Adela Pankhurst was one of the Pankhurst family in England, who, famous for their work supporting the vote for women, supporting women's suffrage in the United Kingdom, and there were three sisters and the mother and father, and they were always in, involved in, I guess, uh, progressive sort of social movement stuff, like uh, with, uh, a big, with a big um, emphasis on looking after the poor and needy. And then they became in, involved in the fight for women's suffrage. But during the course of that, um, Adela, who was very young, was um, obviously from her early days, was a brilliant public speaker and, and a, a fantastic leader of, of movements. And she campaigned around the north of England, but she became alienated from her mother and one of her sisters in particular because she believes that at that stage that you should fight for socialism as well as fighting for women's suffrage and do Shouldn't be separated. Whereas her mother, her mother had had started to take the position that you should just focus on one thing at a time, and and that women's suffrage was the thing you should focus on. And in the end, Emmeline, the mother, when the First World War started, basically hosed down the suffragettes and said that we should be supporting our country at war. And then after the war, they they were given. Britain did move towards, towards women's suffrage. But meantime, there'd been a, a bitter division between between um, Adela and her mother and her sister uh, Christabel. And so uh, the mother gave Adela basically a one-way ticket to Melbourne because in Melbourne they knew Vita Goldstein, who they'd met at a big international women's, women's meeting a couple of years before. So she went to Melbourne where she was met by... Vita Goldstein and Cecilia John off the boat and immediately was sort of embraced by the, uh, the women's movement which was also the anti-war movement in 1914 or became the anti-war move- movement in 1914 so obviously the vote for women was something that Australians had had for quite a few years and Adela then threw herself into campaigning against the war and when the referendums came up into campaigning for a no vote in the 1916 referendum to tell men to, to go to the First World War. And then when that, that uh, vote was lost by the government, by Billy Hughes, the Prime Minister, then Hughes decided to have a second go and a second referendum. With, and once again, uh, Adela campaigned strenuously on that, all up and down the, the east coast of Australia and um, and was famous as a speaker and a leader, how she came to uh, end up in jail.
1: And how many of the other women ended up in jail?
4: I'm not sure. I'm sure that I think uh, there were some, but I don't... Sorry, I don't have that uh, figure with me.
1: But there were others who went to jail, men as well.
4: Yes, there were many, many others. John Curtin, who was later Prime Minister, was a leading organiser paid by the trade union movement There was a national meeting of the Trade Union Movement, I think, in 1916, and um, in Trades Hall in Melbourne as um, an anti-conscription campaigner. And he also ended up in Pentridge for, I think, spent uh, three months in Pentridge.
1: What was the role of the Catholic Church during that anti-conscription campaign?
4: So the Catholic Church gradually moved to oppose conscription and then later to more clearly oppose the war at least through the victorian leader archbishop Mannix. so so initially uh there's a famous speech by Mannox which he delivered in clifton hill in 1916 towards the end of 1916 where he clearly and very persuasively set out the case against conscription but by the start of 1917, he was speaking out against, uh, what he called either, depending which newspaper you believe, either an ordinary trade war or a sordid trade war. But either way, he was, he became a very prominent speaker against the war itself. And many, many Australian Catholics were part of the, I guess, demographic who voted against conscription although Mannix himself said that in the uh, wash-up after the two anti-conscription votes, the Catholic Church was unfairly described as being the reason that the vote had been lost, whereas in fact there were many other groups of people who opposed conscription for a variety of reasons.
1: Just before we go on to the events of the 7th of January, just a little bit more information about what you've done over the years, a little bit of broadening out... Of the play, particularly by Neil Cole.
4: Ah, yes. That's one thing I didn't. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention was that one of the other, initi- one of the other initiatives, our group supported uh, and I hope helped with, was a terrific play by playwright Neil Cole uh, called 1916, where he took Vita uh, Goldstein, Vita uh, Goldstein, and Adela Pankhurst as two main characters and another character which was based on Neil's grandmother and a fictional character. So he had four women in this play and they were debating different aspects to... uh, different views of the vote on conscription, different reasons that you might support it and different, um, uh, different attitudes people took to it, while at the same time describing a lot of the history of the time. And one of the magical things about the... The play was that he had a, a choir of nine schoolgirls from Brunswick Secondary College who sang the songs of the time and sang them beautifully, and that was uh, that, that was uh, fabulous. And some of those girls are going to join us in our production as well, and and sing a song which I guess shows how people regarded Adela as because one of the. Um, one of the local poets wrote a sonnet to Adela Pankhurst, which has been set to music for our production and will be sung by these girls who are in Neil's play. But the, yeah, the play was very successful and highly regarded and it once again raised people's awareness of the history of the period, which is what we're trying to do.
1: And a major conference that was very successful.
4: Yes, yes, no, that was terrific. And, you know, I think 130 people came and there, was, you know, there were a whole jam-packed day of speakers, so that was, yeah, that was great. You
1: were saying 100 years ago the City of Brunswick wasn't very supportive, but it's a bit different this time with the Moreland City Council.
4: Yes, well, we've had terrific support from Moreland City Council, and they've also, to some extent, at our suggestion, because we drew up a whole list of suggestions for them, but they, they've... Um, Supported our project in our projects in a number of ways. They helped fund the conference last year as a, a lead up to our street opera, which we'll talk a bit more about in a second. We asked them for funding to write a, a commemorative a song, which in some way would commemorate the period. And we were lucky enough to commission Stephen Taberner, who's really highly regarded as a composer and is also quite a charismatic leader of mass choirs and of mass singing and he's got a bit of a specialty in in flash mobs uh, most recently he had people in the streets with a street band and a um and a huge choir chanting warm is not cool before the last federal elections anyway so we got Stephen to write us a song and through a process of having workshops with local people and what happened was that people told stories about how war had affected their families and their their own lives so he drew on those stories to write a terrific song with verses four verses each one about a different person's story and those stories are about a family the first verse is a family where a 16 year old who was very tall was sought by people who supported the war to be a shirker and someone who was someone who should be fighting in the war and wasn't so he was given white feathers by young women so he got his sister to help him fake his papers and sign up and go to the war where he was killed and his sister who is the grandmother of one of our choir members never forgave herself for that and so that story is woven into the song along with stories of from the Second World War, from the Vietnam War, in a beautiful song called Ghosts Don't Lie. And that, as I said, was um, the workshops that produced that song and taught it to a big choir of people, so it could be sung in various places. It was funded by Morland Council. They've also helped uh, fund and supported in other ways our current, um, our current project. They're lending us the... Coburg Town Hall to practice in in early January because we've got so many people that it's hard to find a hall big enough to have 120 people, including a band, to have a a practice.
1: Must have been a hell of a lot of planning and work gone into getting this to this stage. When did the planning begin for the street opera?
4: Well, we wrote the submission to Creative Victoria, who have given us our major funding, yes, towards the end of last year. Yeah, so then we found out we had the funding, and we gradually started planning and lining up we lining people up we 've got um a wonderful singer called Lisa Marie Parker, who plays Adela and who um a, has an absolutely fabulous voice and is a great actor as well so she's our one and only paid professional actor, but we've also um I found Miranda Hill, who normally can be seen in the streets of Melbourne leading the Riffraff Band in demonstrations with their kind of red uniforms. But uh, but she's also a, a um, double bass player in classical and experimental music. Anyway, so she's she's um, got together with a group of people who've come along to be to be in our street band. Dave Evans, the um, the accordion player from um, the band "Who Knew Too Much" is um, our accordionist, and Emily Hayes has been uh, helping lead uh, lead the choir and get together choir members. So we've got we have got we assembled our cast of thousands. And meanwhile, we already had the choir from who, who'd learned "Ghosts Don't Lie." So I guess that they they formed the core of um, of our choir, along with people from a, a number of community choirs, including the Trade Union Choir and the Brunswick Rogues and Chocolate Leaves. From Diamond Creek and several other, several other community choirs,
1: and bringing it all together is, of course, Jenny Marsh.
4: Yes, yes. Well, Jenny Marsh. Jenny Marsh is a, is a singer, and every time she sings something to, to us, we think, "Why the hell are we here anyway?" But anyway, so Jenny. Uh, Jenny's a wonderful singer herself, but she's also a composer. She's written. Uh, she's composed many things, uh, um, including a big opera. I guess it was which was performed in the botanical gardens about the life of baron von mueller who was the first director of the botanical gardens and who was a botanist who went all over victoria um identifying and and uh, identifying plant uh, victorian plants in the 1800s but jenny's probably best known to um people in the community as a as a choir leader she leads a, a number of community choirs some of them are just for fun like the Group in Beau Morris attached to the football team, which is called the Final Sirens. (laughs) But at the same time, um, she pulls together the climate choir, which appears occasionally at uh, climate demonstrations. And uh, many of us first met her in uh, the choir that was uh, the choir called Canto Coro, which started off by whose first work was to perform a huge piece called Canto General, which put together the poems of. Pablo Neruda, to music by Nikos Theodorakis, the Greek composer. So Jenny's a terrific um, community choir leader and, and knows that our aim has to be not just to produce a, a stunning work of uh, music and musical theatre, but also that everyone who comes along should have a good time and meet people and get together and enjoy themselves. So that's been part of our aim.
1: Now you've got choirs, you've got the band, you've got the unruly mob, and all in costume.
4: Yes, yes. The choir will be wearing 1918 costume or something like it. So we'll uh, be wearing the women will be wearing long skirts and uh, men will be will be wearing cotton shirts and trousers and braces and and uh, we hope that we'll look a bit like those people might have looked as they came out of their houses in Coburg on that hot summer night.
1: Where does it start?
4: OK, so the the main performance on the uh, 7th of January, we're planning to start in three different locations, to, uh, divide our choir and our unruly mob and the audience, if they wish, into three groups who will then march with a mini band, <laughs> with a small section of the band, to the entrance of Pentridge. So the places we we're going to, planning to start are the... Coburg Mall, the, what's called the Old Cop Shop, which is a cafe which is, is in fact the Old Cop Shop where the original event ended up, and also a group will march down from the, um, from the Coburg Lake Park, which is just a stone's throw from the, from the, gates, uh, the main gates of Pentridge. These three groups will march and come together outside the main gates and march into the into the courtyard at Pentridge where we're going to be performing which is just inside those big impressive gates that face across Champ Street to Sydney Road.
1: I hope you've got the police in check this time.
4: Ah. <laughs> yes we we will politely tell the police the, the police it's on and in fact I um I met the the, the, Moreland, uh, the head of the Moreland Police at a uh, Moreland Council meeting and, and Said to him that we were thinking of asking them to, to send a, to send along the police horses in period costume, but we haven't followed that up yet.
1: <laughs> and what time should people be out on the streets on the seventh of January?
4: We'll be meeting in the various three locations I mentioned at six and marching to the to, uh, to Pentridge to get there and and get the the opera underway by. By 6:30, 6, uh, but um, we are hoping. I mean, of course, people can turn up, but and there's lots of room in that courtyard. But if you don't make a booking, which is free, uh, you might find yourself standing up. So we, we're hoping that people will go in to try bookings, and look up Serenading and Ella and put their name down for how many seats they would have.
1: And if people want to follow it through over Christmas, there's your web page. Facebook?
4: Uh, yes, yes. They can look. If, look, if you just um, Google serenading Adela, you'll find our Facebook, you should be able to find our Facebook event and our um, WordPress web page, and all the details are up there. Mm.
1: Well, I'll finish, Nancy, by saying congratulations for a job well done. It's been a, a labour of love, I'd imagine.
4: Yes, and all you have to do now is, I know that probably January, Most of your listeners won't be religious, but maybe if they are and they have some sort of, you know, powers in that direction, they could organise for there to be no thunderstorms and rain on the night of the 7th of January. We do have a we do have a backup plan to go to the Coburg Town Hall, thanks to Morland Council, but uh, we are hoping for fine weather. Which, yeah, yeah, which at that time of year, I think we probably will, will get.
1: I'm sure it can be arranged. Okay. Thanks, Nancy. Okay. Thanks. And that's all for me for 2017. That was Nancy Atkin. And I'll leave you with uh, a little bit of Ghosts Don't Lie by Stephen Taberner. Bye for now.